Hello, everyone. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. My conversation with Ch- uh, excuse me, Kate Jagetti, the uh, teacher, author, spiritual guide, uh, that'll be out. This coming next week, next week, probably when this comes out. And, oh, it's a good one. Should be a lot of fun. And uh, you can you can watch it at authormagazine.org, as always. And we are funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. Uh, we will be doing a very short conference, uh, a little mini conference uh, at the end of August, the 20th and 21st. I'm going to be teaching a class there about how to, how to uh, write a book pitch and how to write a book proposal so you can check that out and of course they have their yearly conference as always at uh, the end of september and i'll be teaching there as well so if you're interested in any of that go check out pnwa.org all right woo! had a great conversation with christina baker klein talked about all kinds of stuff if you're not familiar she is a number one new york times best-selling author of eight novels including uh the mega bestseller orphan train in a piece of the world uh and her books have been published in 40 countries her novels have been awarded the new england society award for fiction the main literary award and a barnes and noble discovery award among other accolades and have been chosen by hundreds of communities, universities, and schools as one book, one read selections. She has also written or edited five nonfiction books. Her essays, articles, and reviews have appeared in publications such as the New York Times and the New York Times Book Review, the Boston Globe, the San Francisco Chronicle, Psychology Today, Poets and Writers, and Salon. And, oh, we had a lot to say. She had a lot to say. And I'm thrilled I get to share that conversation with you now. Enjoy. Christina, welcome. Welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. We're on book, let's see, The Exiles, uh, which is great, by the way. Really good. Uh, So the paperback was was released a couple weeks ago. It's now, right? So this will be airing in first week in August. But uh, and the hardback was published, what, six months ago, probably? The hardcover came out in at the end of August last year. Oh, okay, so it's been a year. Oh, in the COVID. right COVID. thick of it. Oh, man. Yeah. Man, that's been a, quite a whirlwind. Yeah, that's book number seven, eight. What are we? It's novel number eight. Novel. I also have five nonfiction books that I've written or edited, but um, right. I am mostly sticking to fiction these days. Yeah. Yeah. And this, so this um, is novel number yeah. seven. Wow. Okay. So, and you got the nonfiction and you've written a lot of essays. All right. So let's back up. Let's go way back. You weren't always this big, successful author. You were once upon a time, just a young lass, not <laughs> sure what her future held. Uh, were you, was writing always on your horizon? What were you like when you were 12? Oh my gosh. I was a big reader. Yeah. Um, so I, my, so I think writers often emerge out of lives that are um, tumultuous in some ways. 
I tend to agree. Yeah. It's so good fuel, isn't it? It is fuel. So my early life, my parents were raised Southern Baptist. They were both from the South. Wow. My mother's great, great grandmother had been the first woman to graduate from college in North Carolina. My wow. father was the first person in his entire extended family, not only to graduate from college, but to finish the eighth grade. Holy um, smokes. Yeah. So two very different, and you might imagine wow. somewhat volatile <laughs> differences yeah. in yeah. personality. And my father became a professor of English literature. Wow. I mean, sorry, of English history. And my mother was a professor of English literature, but they, they, we had a, I grew up in a, the seventies in a hippie household where um, we had lived in England for a number of years. I was born and raised there. I had an English accent when we came back to the States and we moved to Maine because my mm. parents were kind of rabble rousers and they wanted to get as far away from the South Southern as Baptist. they could without <laughs> going to Canada. Right. So they, they went to Maine and, wow. uh, you know, and we grew up in a pretty non-traditional household. So um, at the age of 12, you would have found me doing most of the cooking for the family because my mother put us to work at a very young age. Wow. My sister, Cynthia and me, we had two little sisters and we sort of raised them. My mother went back to work and had lots of causes, feminist right. and otherwise. Right, right. And, um, yeah, I just wrote an article about, I actually just wrote an, an essay about this. It's coming out in Real Simple next year uh, in January, which is about the food we ate was such a bizarre combination of like hush puppies, moosewood cookbook, wheat germ, and and then like lobsters. I remember? have the moosewood cookbook. Oh my God, I've never heard of it. We've got that. Remember the moosewood cookbook? Oh yeah, it's been around forever. I used to make that stuffed eggplant, which is really good. Wow. Um, but anyway, wow. so I had we had an unusual childhood and I was always reading. And I always tell people that the, the weird thing is not that I kind of became a writer. The weird thing is that all children are born creative and most people yes. stop. Yeah. And yes. so, as you know, every child wants to sing and dance and draw and paint and tell stories. And most people get it so, sort of, uh, just one way or another. Out out of them. Them. Yeah. And why did I not uh, is the real question. But I will say that I, I grew up in a family without much money. I was the oldest child of four girls and I was really scrappy. So mm -hmm. when I realized I wanted to write, I also did not count on the idea that I would make a living at it ever. I mean, mm -hmm. my parents, my parents were writers. My father has 12 books, but he was a professor. Right. Um, it's different. It's different. Yeah. I mean, it is, except that I, <laughs> someone said, oh, did your life change when, you know, Orphan Train came out, which was my really big book that right. sold millions of copies. And it, sure, it changed. And I can talk about how it changed. But what really happened, but, but really, truthfully, this is so pathetic, but I thought I was success, success from the beginning. I thought I was a success no, when I was selling Nothing 10, wrong with that. You published I mean, a book, you're I, like, I didn't expect I, that. Right? I got an agent. I got published. That's right. My publisher liked me. Yeah. Uh, one of my books sold 30,000 copies. And that, I thought, that's was pretty, the well, best but, I would ever do. I thought that was fantastic. It is. It is. And my advances were not unreasonable. They were 
in the high five figures, I was right. doing fine as far as I was concerned. Yeah. I had a working career as essentially a mid-list writer. Right. Um, and honestly, and I also, so some years I made enough money to support myself and some years I made it up with editing and teaching. Right. I taught full sure. time for many years in, I got qualified to teach at the college level. So I taught, I was writer in residence at Fordham for four years. I taught at oh, NYU. Right. I taught college seminars at Yale. I taught at Drew University at UVA, like all over the place. And uh, and I also had an editing business where I edited books and, right. and uh, other things. And so I just kind of always thought that I would cobble a life together sure. in that way. Sure. Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, success is such a slippery animal because yeah. it has no standing definition. Um, I, I had a friend who sold her first book, got into the New York Times bestseller list, was the first thing she'd ever published. And she was hanging around with all these sort of big shot literary types down at the Florida writers, is it the Miami book fair, I guess. Yep. And um, one of them was like, he had, you know, he sold to Harper's and Paris Review and New Yorker. And he had, he was like a working literary writer who was, you know, didn't have to teach if he didn't want to, but he hadn't won the National Book Award. So in his mind, he was a failure. That yeah, was it. I mean, this is a thing that writers right? get into. And I do have to say, not to be gendered here, but I think it would be really harder to be a male writer because I do think there's a lot of this like swagger that um, you kind of, if you're not writing the great American novel right. in your mind, you know, there's a lot of sort of posturing. I've there seen is, and I, and I can talk, and from a, I, men in general, I think, have a suicidal relationship to success that is just absolutely debilitating. And it's, you know, I think women can absorb that too if they want, you know, take it away if you want it. But I think that men's relationship to success is so fundamental to their value that, and so they start saying, well, how do I know? And then awards become the, you know, being the great one because for so many years, the great ones were all men, you know, they were all the Hemingway partners and all that kind of crap. Absolutely. And it's also tied to a certain, it's a tied to numbers, it's tied yeah. to awards. You know, for me, I just realized something about myself fairly early on, which is that I just want to live in a world of words and ideas. Oh, really? Why? I, I, like somebody comes to you and says, God, but like, this is, I mean, because the interesting thing about being a writer is, and I teach writing and I love it. And I love talking about saying as of all the art forms, your tool is thought. That's all you get. I also write music, but I've got my hands and the chords and banging and I can sing. Yeah. Right. It's thought. It's all thought. And yeah. so why thought? Why do you want to live in a world I of know. thought? Well, I, it's not that I want to live in the world of my thought, which I actually find really hard to, to <laughs> summon. I mean, writing is really hard right. for me. Um, is, it? is it? It is really hard. It's super hard. I okay. don't think it's all right. harder. I okay. am terrified if I'm, if it's going well, I think it's gonna, I'm gonna screw it up. If oh, it's you're going badly. <laughs> oh no, it's more just that I'm, I just find it a confidence game all the time. Yep. And um, yep. so, but what I like is living in the world of other people's thoughts oh, <laughs> that are, that are, in other words, I love reading great books and good articles, of course, and essays and short stories, but I really just like living in a world of ideas. And, and yeah. again, they're not necessarily, they don't have to be my ideas. And also music and theater and, yeah. and movies and series, um, just where thoughts and ideas are being generated as the sort of, 
you know, underbelly, the underbelly. If you're, if you're digging under the surface of cocktail party conversation, that's what I care about. Good. That's what well, I want. You know, I realize around creativity, like until an idea has come to me, I can't do anything. Yeah. I can't, I can't, like, there's no, I can't stick a coin, pull a handle and have an idea come out. Like an idea has to come to me the way, and there's ways I can focus, I think that allow them, but I need those in order to do anything. And I'm looking for them in the world or I'm listening or I'm looking at my own experiences. But until that comes, I have nothing to, it's like a, a builder without architecture, without the architectural plans. I have yeah, to have I, an idea to pursue. Does that make sense? Do you mean an idea for a novel? Article, essay, not book, yeah. anything. You know, just Definitely. some fundamental thing that interests me that I want to explore and, and pursue. I and, actually felt during COVID, gosh, I have so many friends who were just pumping out books. Really? I, I didn't feel that way. I didn't, oh. to your point, I, I, I was, I went very interior. I was reading a lot. I was watching things, as I said, series, listening to music, yeah. but I wasn't really generative. And I, uh, and in a way I was lucky because my book came out. I had a ton of stuff to do about that. And um, I've written articles and that's fun, different. Right. Um, and I've done lots of blurbing and I've done lots of events with other authors. I've done more than, you know, what, 120 Zoom events or something <laughs> nice. in the past. Yeah. And right. I, but I have felt terrible that I wasn't, that I didn't feel creative um, and it's coming right. back, but yeah. it's not, everybody's different. And I just yeah. wasn't someone who could. So you kind of need the, a little bit of interaction to get, to wake something up in you, just some of the yeah, push and pull of the world. Yeah, and I think something about the way COVID felt like a dark cloud. I mean, that yeah. that I, I don't, I was, I don't, I was up here, I'm, I'm in Maine on this right. island, Mount Desert Island, which is connected <laughs> to land. So it's not right. like Martha's Vineyard, although it's about that size. And my three sisters are here and their families. So it's been a, we had a big, a nice COVID bubble that nice. wasn't too small. So I didn't feel isolated. Um, but I did definitely, there was something about the unrest of, you know, BLM, all the stuff that happened um, after George Floyd. And, yep. the, and then like today I was just listening in the background, which I finally turned off, but to the Capitol. Oh riot yeah. I was kind of stuff. checking in on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, how anyone can hear that and not think that it was a major insurrection. I know. I know. I know. So, you know there was a lot going on. There was a lot going on. Um, yeah, there was. And, and so I just think I just felt that unrest this year. So, well, it's interesting. You're historic. I mean, then, so The Exiles is the first novels of yours, of yours I've read, historical. Mm -hmm. I, I, you live in historical fiction. I assume that is your- Yeah, not really. I mean, I just, my, only my last three books. Okay. And in fact, the first one of those, Orphan Train, is set two thirds of it's in the present and mm. only a hundred pages is in the past. Um, but you're kind of living through history, you know, I mean, we always, we're always living through history, but like, that was my son's 22nd birthday. And I said, boy, you're never going to forget that. And, uh, I mean, as someone who has written about history, I mean, written in historical times. Yes. Did, does that, did it strike you living through something that really felt once in a generation, if not once in, well, for America, once in first time, really? I mean, it's 9-11, it's, yeah. it, it's so profound. It will always be with us. Yeah, um, I think so. And I felt that very much. And actually, weirdly, The Exiles is so, so speaks to this moment in the political unrest, in, in the 
uh, what happens to incarcerated people. There's so much in the news about that these days. Yeah. Yeah. And then this idea also of being kind of a stranger in your own land and the, yeah. uh, uh, you know, with COVID, um, I didn't, it's not about a plague, but it is about um, being absolutely isolated from other people right. and what that was like I, for these women in particular that I write about, the convict women yeah. who trans eventually transformed Australia, but whose journey I describe, you know, in my novel. Yeah. And so let, let's back up to like the orphan train was what kind of blew up for you. It's when you went. Yeah. And so, you know, it's always kind of a weird thing. Like writers don't always know why think one thing really takes off and another's done some like I, Garth Stein's a friend of mine and his he wrote yeah. the art of racing in the rain and yeah, he I know knew. Him. have yeah. you met him yeah oh yeah we've hung out yeah and so he's a good guy but he kind of knew he was on to something when he like it did it felt very different to him yes. but you were already writing and writing and writing and then along comes this did you recognize something when you were writing it that felt different that you were like oh this feels even more like me or or was it just oh this one's blowing up who knew it was such uh, an outlier and it was also so unexpected, such a sleeper. I mean, not only was I surprised, but everyone was surprised. And now <laughs> the case study of how a book, it does not happen very often that a book that got a modest five-figure advance right. um, takes off to that extent, to the extent that it's on the New York Times bestseller list for two more than two years. It was in the top five for a year. It was number one for five weeks. It was so, such a crazy experience and sold now like 4 million copies. It's a lot. And it came out of, it seemingly came out of nowhere. I mean, if publishers, in fact, I'll tell you this, in the PR meeting, that the, the marketing meeting that we had before the book came out, I remember someone at the table, one of the mar marketing gurus, saying, well, you know, we're not quite sure what to do with this book because it doesn't, doesn't really hit your demographic of 30 to 60-year-old women. Uh -huh. This affected 17-year-old goth girl who's pretty unsympathetic. And then you have this cranky 91-year-old woman. It's just, she said, I'm just not sure how this is going to, you know, work. She was warning me. Um, and then, you know, as it turns out, breaking those rules was exactly what I needed to do. Right. And, you know, a number of things came into play. I think the fact that it was an American story about a little known period in American history that is actually very important, where a quarter of a million children were sent on trains in a labor program as forced labor uh, between the ages of two and 14 ending in 1929. And there are now more than 4 million descendants of those people. Right. And they went right. mostly to the Midwest. But that was a big story that has been sort of hidden in plain sight. It was never in the history books. No one talked yeah. about it. In fact, when I was doing research for that novel, I went to the Tenement Museum in Lower Manhattan, which is a wonderful place, but they had these tenement stories. And right, they actually tenements you walk through, right? Don't yeah. they have them, like set up? It's yeah, great, and it's fantastic. But I went and there was no mention anywhere of the orphan trains, even though, as I say, well, as I'm telling you, the Lower East Side was sort of ground zero for the trains. Oh. Everybody came in through Ellis Island, most people, right. and right. then went through Lower East Side often, and then onto the trains, immigrant children. Yep. And uh, they said, well, you know, we 
it's really a footnote to history. We don't consider that part of the main story. Right. So flash forward a year after my book comes out and they asked me to come and give a lecture to their wow. staff wow. because they needed to start talking about the orphan trains because people on tours were asking them about them. Wow. And they are, the orphan trains were an important part of our history, right. but because it was mostly women and children really who were involved in it and because it was poor, indigent, well, it's pretty shameful too. You know, nobody wants it's 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 ugly. It's yeah. it's it's a mean. It's nothing anyone's going to be proud of. And so, if we can forget it, then yeah, people exactly work, right. Because who wants to talk on. about this, right? Well, yeah. Also, that the history, our history, is the history of conquerors and of presidents sure, and of generals and wars yeah. and treaties. It's not yeah, the history of the poor. Yeah, the but that is changing. I got to say, there's I, I interview a lot of writers who are. A lot of them women because there's, there's such a drive in women to tell the story because history that's never women's history is almost never told uh, for right. whatever reason, but they haven't been. Uh, and women are starting to, a lot of women are wanting to change that, really wanting to change that and women want to read it. So I feel like you and I think I can think of a, probably think of a dozen I've interviewed who are starting to change that, who are so interested in that untold aspect of it. That that's maybe right. that's starting to shift. It's definitely starting to shift. I mean, fiction, it's such an interesting way in. You were gonna say that there was someone that you interviewed who had a connection or who reminded you of something. Oh, well, it's, it, I would just interviewed a, a woman who's the Northwest and she calls herself the author's librarian who wrote about research. Mm -hmm. And she loves researching and she helps authors research and this is a thing. And I was thinking about you as I was talking to her because this is sort of a technical thing, but I, I find, you know, research, you got to do it to do your thing. Yeah. But as a creative writer, everything's about detail. Yeah. You know, and I now see, I write about my own life to the exclusion of all other subjects <laughs> now, right? That's so it's good. very easy. My research is pretty straightforward, but the details are very important. And when I did write, I tried my hand at, at um, historical fiction, which I liked okay years ago, it was the details that drove me nuts. Like, I know what it looks like to walk through Seattle where I live and all the unusual things you wouldn't think of, but what is it in Missouri in 1860? Like, how do I just learn those little details that you wouldn't just, besides the gun and the horse and the, and that's what I always admire about writers like yourself. Cause I feel like you had walked through uh, London in 1840, say when I was reading. Yeah, I mean, the, the secret to writing, I mean, to be honest with you, a lot of, a lot of historical fiction um, I don't read. A ton of <laughs> I it. know what you're gonna say. No, because I, I'm not. I don't. I'm not interested in the catalog of your research. Right, I, right, right. I want the story, and I want the research to be secondary. Um, Hilary Mantel, who wrote Wolf Hall and you know some other great books, um, said that she writes contemporary novels that are set in the past. Right. And I love that idea. And and it sort of takes the pressure off in a way. I mean, frankly, I love the research, but I I also, when I write dialogue, for example, the dialogue in this novel, Exile, The Exiles, is really a combination of the way people spoke in the 1840s and right. the way they speak today. It's not, I'm not trying to, for verisimilitude exactly. Well, you wouldn't want it either, would you? I mean, it would be kind of unreadable, wouldn't it? Yeah, when you read contemporaneous accounts, you're like, mm. yeah. a lot of exclamation points, a lot of high drama, you know, especially yeah. in the novels from that period that aren't Jane Austen, let's just say. Right. Um, right. So it's, it's really, 
been an, it's an interesting process when you write about the past to sort of try to capture what it felt like. But, you know, to me, the most important thing is putting the reader right there in the place. Well, that's what I mean. And you need, you you, you need specificity. Specificity is where, is what brings it into place, you know, and, and you have to have those details at your ready. I too, I don't, I'm not actually interested in the past in that way. Like I don't, feel like I want to walk through the 1800s, but I'm interested in stories about yes. human beings who were still like us even on 200 years ago or whatever. Right, right. And so, but There's I still need to know, like, well, what was that like just so I can put myself there, you know, cause it wasn't, there were no phones and they, they had different cons- concerns a little bit, you know, and different expectations and so on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my, my, what I do is write my stuff and then I'm just, I just ruth, ruthlessly pair it back. And in fact, oh, I had okay. to, I'm doing an, a, a thing tomorrow night where I have to read a couple of excerpts and I was reading my book thinking, oh, I just wish I'd cut See, more. Don't you, don't you, that. It? you, yes. worked and you worked and you worked it. And as soon as someone's going to hear it, you're like, oh man, what, what was yeah, I, what it's I, right there. I yeah. Can't, Taking that thing out. And it's funny because I almost never think I should add. I always think I should take, I should have pared back and just gotten more and more and more bare, bare bones. Um, but it's published. I tell my <laughs> students that if I, I don't like to sum up the craft too, with too much pithiness, but if I had to sum it down, it'd be how can I say the most and the least? Like that's yes. the question that's sort of sitting with me all the time. Not that every sentence has to be a little, you know, declarative statement you want there to be a reverberation you want your words to echo to yes i just got um i just blurbed this book that's coming out she's, uh in she's october holding, she's holding up a book called memoirs, memoirs of a stock of stockholm Sven. 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 Okay. Ian miller i just learned that it has been long listed for the center of fiction first fiction prize. He's a, he's a debut novelist. Nice. Oh, and, got you. Oh, he's got to be glad he's got you blurbing that. I know. <laughs> um, no, but I, what I loved about it is exactly that economy. He yeah. just does a beautiful job, as you say, of kind of um, letting there be, well, as I guess I'm saying, letting there be, be silence between the words, yes. letting there be breath yeah. between the wor- words. I, I um, was, I listened to, I, I read a novel by this woman who was a, she was a debut novelist. I can't remember the name of the book. She was a gorgeous writer, but she was also a musician. And in it, she was talking, I like to compose music and I, and I love music. And, and she was talking about the power of music and the, the, the space between the notes being more important than notes. And I'd never thought of that until she had written it. And I thought she is absolutely right. I mean, the notes are obviously important, but the power often lies between them. Totally agree. And you know, painting is that way too. Oh. That- yeah, my wife's an artist. Absolutely, it's the shadow, not the light, that you're more concerned with. Yes, and in, and the spaces between, you know, the sort of silence of the canvas in some yeah. ways, the spaces on the canvas. Yeah. Um, well, now I want to ask you about your music, Bob. Well, yeah. Well, I wrote like symphonic stuff to start, believe it or not, and then I've moved to just playing the piano in like songs. So I long wanted to sing. My fear was that I didn't know how to sing, and so I've had to sort of teach myself. I was so embarrassed about my voice. You know? Are you in a band now? No, no. My band is me and the piano. I record everything <laughs> on GarageBand. I create these songs, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do with them. But for now, it's I just to hear them is enough for me for now. That you have a lot of creative output, my goodness. Uh, you, you know, I need it. I need it because I write and I think and I talk about writing. Like I need something that's physical 
And also a lot of my stuff is nonfiction now. It's sort of creative, spiritual nonfiction. And I like, I need just like sound and music and poetry. And so the music yeah. is my output for that. Oh, Thank I totally get that. I love it. I love it. it. Makes me happy. It's what I was doing right before this interview, as a matter of fact. Oh, how great. All right. So I want two things I got to ask you. First, you say writing is hard. I, I, you say this, and yet you are pro relatively prolific, I would say, on the scale of somebody who writes, I will call it serious fiction, meaning you're, like, you're not just trying to crank out enough. Nothing wrong yeah. with mystery writers, but they can do a book a year, but you're trying to do, you're searching for a new book every time you, you write yeah, one. Yeah, kind of every three years or so. So for someone months. who finds it hard, I don't like to do things that are hard <laughs> anytime. I'm not saying that my writing doesn't challenge me, and it's, but I don't actually like hard things. I always prefer easy. So even yes. though you find it hard, you kind of keep want to keep doing it. So why are you doing something hard? Why not go do something easy? <laughs> That's a really good question. I find most things hard. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my! I God. find I find um, being in the world of writers such a delight, and oh. actually, I find it hard because it is hard to create a world out of nothing, in my view, and to take it seriously and to take yourself seriously and to really get to the depths of what you're trying to explore. And so uh, that difficulty is part of the joy, even though it's not always fun in the exact moment. Right. And I write longhand, so I oh. gather my pages and then that next draft of typing it in is actually joyful because that's the most fun draft. It doesn't have to be, it's not, it's nowhere near the final draft, but it is kind of taking stock of what I've gotten on the page. If I can trap it like lightning in a bottle, yeah. um, that feels fantastic. And then it's just making sense of it in that draft. And I love that. All right, so it's not all bad. It's not all eating nails and walking it's not over all the bad. It's not all bad. It's sort of um, a psychological game with myself too. Yeah. yeah, and also to really, you know, you can write badly <laughs> and to write well is, I think requires a lot of work. It requires focus, doesn't it? Cause you really have to kind of like, I find for myself, I just have to like, I have to be willing to wait for yeah. me. I, I, I have to be really patient and say, you know, don't recycle, don't bring the old idea. Like, let's wait, let's wait for the new thing. Let's wait for the new thing. And that was hard. That was hard for me for years, but it isn't anymore. I, I've, I've grown to like it, but it was, boy, that was decades of me being like, tick, 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 man. Where's the, yeah. where's the thing? That it's, was my- that, that can be distressing. I, and you know what? Everyone works differently. I think for me, um, once I'm really in a novel, I have to just trust that I will be able to make sense of what I get on the page. Right. And that's, you know, that's not easy. It's not easy. And yeah. so, but getting, doing the work, doing the work, even on days that I don't feel creative. What I find is that when you go back, a lot of times you can't quite see where you were not into it or into it. That's I, nice. Oh, that's good. I mean, it, you know, eventually you sort of, it all, comes out in the wash when you're revising, of course, but, and there are things you throw away, but, uh, but I think the work, you know, the work begets creativity. In other words, you, oh, well, the P Picasso quote is inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. <laughs> you know, it's true. I always tell my students, I, whenever I sit down, I'm never in the mood to write when I begin writing, like never, right. but I know my attention is not where the story is is not where my and it i will find it but i'm never there to begin with and i don't make a big deal about that anymore 
Yeah, I totally think that's true. And that's just what you do if you're, maybe you do it for working out or. Exactly. But it's even different with writing because you do have to at some point have that jolt of inspiration, that that like excitement, mm-hmm. curiosity and discovery, but I'm never there. I'm almost never there to begin with. I'm just finding it, finding it. Oh, you're a very interesting person, Christine. Now, listen. Also, can I say one more thing? Oh, please, please. I just want to say that for me, um, and people do that again, people, everybody's different. But for me, reading even just some lines of work that I that has inspi- that inspires me in the morning can be really helpful. And so oh, for a specific book I'm working on, like right now, every book I read, I underline, and I know this is bad, but I have my own books and I can do what I want. Um, <laughs> but I underline passages that mean something to me in the context of the book I'm working on now. And then I have a document just called Ideas and Inspiration. And I have quotes from these books, just snippets that are, for whatever reason, in the vein of what I'm thinking. I love that because I I think it's so important for a writer to understand you got to not just learn how to write a good sentence or tell a story, but you got to learn how you write your books. Yeah. Like you have to learn and it's like, and no one can tell you how to do that. No one can say, here's what you got to do. Find a book, underline it, create a board like that, you know, and you could tell someone else to do it and it wouldn't work for them. Totally. I know. I have a writer friend who has a whiteboard, a giant one right. in her office. Right. Right. And I just don't work that way. It's, yep. I find, I thought, what is wrong with me? I don't have a yeah, whiteboard. That's right. you gotta, yeah. It's like people who don't outline and I'm one of those often say, Oh, I know we don't outline. I'm like, don't, don't apologize for how you work. If you outline, great. If you don't, don't, there is no one way to do it. All right. Here's my last question for you though, Christine. Yes. Here's what I want you to, I want you to finish this sentence. If writing all the writing you've done your whole short life uh, has taught you anything, it's taught you what? There's this quote from Thomas Hardy. Uh, He says, uh, deep within us, there is a stir that creates us, that can create us or destroy us. I just butchered the quote, but it's something like that. What I, what writing I think has taught me and a life of writing and reading has taught me is that every human contains multitudes and we see just a tiny sliver of a person when we meet someone. And I think keeping that in mind is really important for living an interesting, curious life. You know, going to a party and meeting someone who seems dull and thinking about who they might really be and trying to dig a bit under the surface is makes life more interesting in my view. Anyone could be the subject of a novel. Anyone on earth's life could with the, yes. with the proper curiosity because their life could be the, uh, the subject of a novel. Maybe yeah. even yours. Maybe, maybe. Oh, listen, exactly. this has been so much fun. Uh, the book you, is Exiles. It's great, people. You're going to love it. Go get it. Uh, thank you, Christine. It's been so much thank fun. You so much for having me on. I had a blast. I could talk to you for 12 hours. <laughs> uh, and have a fantastic summer. Oh, and thank you. Um, good luck with your music. And thank you. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Every life matters. Everybody matters. Every story matters. It's true. It's true. 
We talked a lot about music, didn't we? Hey, by the way, if you're curious, all the music you hear on these things, that's the stuff I wrote. Yeah, that's an example of it anyway, if you wanted to know exactly what it sounds like sometimes. Um, okay. Well, that was a lot of fun. I'll be back again next week. I want to thank my producer, R.J. Jeffries. Thank you, as always, and to all of you out there whose lives mean so much. Go find something you love to do and do it. <laughs>